0: This podcast is from the RAND Corporation, a nonprofit institution that helps
1: improve policy and decision-making through research and analysis. Visit www.rand.org to learn more about us and to explore RAND's free
0: online library of more than 10,000 policy reports and commentaries.
2: Good evening. I, uh, my name is Lindsay Cosberg, and I'm Rand's Vice President for External Affairs, and I have the very rare privilege tonight of starting us a few minutes early. Tonight, you, uh, you will have the opportunity to hear about work that demonstrates why, over the course of our history, RAND has been dedicated to multidisciplinary teams and why we've worked so hard to address a breadth of research areas that, frankly, no other research organization tries to address simultaneously. Goals, incentives, and measures are appealing accountability concepts across all manner of public and private service delivery. And Rand has worked for decades in education and with the military to explore how we use incentives to improve the quality of results. Brian... Uh, is part of a team that helped expand that work and that expertise across the childcare, education, healthcare care, public health preparedness and transportation sectors. Um, I would like to, to, to throw out that i can 't imagine another organization that could have done the work that we undertook and that Brian will be discussing with you. Brian, who I have already mentioned, is the acting director of RAND Education and has been a leader within RAND education for two decades. His research focuses on measuring educational quality and improvement. Excuse me, measuring educational quality and improvement, evaluating education reforms, particularly assessment and accountability systems, and he has directed prominent national and state evaluations, including very prominent uh, law, uh, evaluations of the No Child Left Behind law and its impact uh, at multiple levels of the education system. <clears throat> Brian has recently authored the work. He'll be talking about tonight, Toward a Culture of Consequences, Performance-Based Accountability Systems for Public Services, and it is my pleasure to turn the microphone over to Brian Stetcher.
0: Well, thank you all very much. I'm actually quite surprised that a topic that seems fairly academic to me, like performance-based accountability, would attract such a large audience. Um, So I'm thrilled that you are here. What I want to talk about tonight from multiple perspectives is the idea that there's an alternative way to do accountability that we can use to help improve public services. The alternative uh, to what we typically do, which is fairly direct regulation of uh, how people behave. And um, what I'm going to talk about under the general heading of public services are... um, collection of activities, some of which are are directly uh, delivered by government agencies like education, transportation, uh, public health services, and some of which are delivered by private organizations that are heavily regulated by public agencies, health care and child care being the examples. So the idea is that by tying incentives to outcomes, we can help uh, enhance the quality of services that are provided. So this little accountability loop that I'm going to be talking about tonight is actually something that should be fairly familiar to us because we see it all the time in our lives as consumers. Uh, There are a myriad of rating agencies or rating organizations out there from the Zagat Guide to the uh, health department that uh, looks at services and provides us with capsule judgments about how effective they are. I have a couple of examples up here. You can um, find out about the quality of a hotel room. You can see the uh, consumers' ideas about the... uh, Quality of their cell phone company. Uh, You can look at a public health rating about the uh, safety and uh, food handling characteristics of a particular restaurant. Uh, And all of these ratings then allow you to make decisions about whether to purchase a particular product or whether to um, uh, enroll in a particular plan or whether to. uh, stay at a particular hotel and your choices have consequences for the businesses and so we have built into this an accountability loop if the business does well and gets a good rating consumers buy its services it is rewarded and prospers. If a business does poorly and gets a poor rating and we look at those ratings and take them seriously and we eschew those businesses, they do poorly and their coverage shrinks. That's the idea that we want to talk about bringing into the area of public services. Because for the most part, that's not the way public services are um, regulated. What's typically the case is... um, Let's use Medicare as an example. If I, uh, as a Medicare patient, go to see a physician, I'll go in with my concerns or complaints. The physician will provide uh, services to me, maybe some diagnostic testing, and then perhaps prescribe some drugs. Uh, And then the physician sends a bill directly to Medicare. Uh, Medicare reviews the bill against some... Criteria it has mostly trying to make sure that there's no fraud involved and uh, sends a payment back to the physician. But nowhere in this cycle does my health enter into the payment plan. If I get better, if I don't get better is really not a direct consideration in how the money is received. Uh, the money flows to the physician who provides those services that 's what we 're going to talk about today are instances in which what happens in this case patient related outcomes are actually factored into the decision about how payment might be made to physicians. Um, so this notion is the one i 'm use i 'm uh, assigning this ponderous label, performance-based accountability systems. And the uh, central element of these systems is a, a little triangle that includes three pieces. In order to d- design a good performance-based accountability system, you need an uh, agreement about goals. We have to agree, the people who are going to be using the service and the people who are going to be providing the service, what the ultimate long-term goals of the service are so we know which direction we're heading. Then you need a set of quantitative indicators, some numbers that you can use to see whether or not short-term outcomes are moving towards those long-term goals that that we're hoping for. And then you have incentives, which might be financial or they might not be financial. They might just be public recognition tied to the measures so that good performance gets rewarded, um, poor performance gets uh, not rewarded. Uh, And if this loop is designed well, it helps to lead to overall uh, raising the long term achievement, achieving the goals down the road that are the basis for the system. So uh, over the past couple of years, uh, a team of ten of us here at RAND have been looking at performance based accountability systems in the US in a number of different sectors. Expertise is in education, but I was joined on this work by um, senior RAND researchers in transportation and child care, in public health, emergency preparedness, uh, and in in healthcare. And if you saw our publication out front, the names of my colleagues are listed there, and they deserve uh, credit. And if I uh, if I ruin any of the examples, I will take the blame. Um, we did this because um, pub- performance-based accountability is actually uh, quite popular in a number of other countries, but it's relatively new in the U.S., and there hasn't been much study of these systems in the United States. And we wanted to bring some empirical analysis to this. Um, to bear on the question because a number of legislators at the state and at the federal level are being asked to do more of this kind of thing. So we felt it was appropriate to try to um, help inform those discussions by looking at what we can learn from the cases that already exist. So let me tell you a little bit about what we studied. Um, Within the child care, we looked at what are called Quality rating and improvement systems, these are mostly designed by states and they assign letter grades or stars, usually, to child care providers based on a review of things like the, pup- the ratio of, of uh, supervisors to children, uh, safety records, and things like that. Um, We looked in education primarily at No Child Left Behind, which is a national program that sanctions schools if the number of students who are proficient on reading and math tests does not increase fast enough. And the sanctions can be quite serious. Uh, Initially, schools have to do advanced planning, but after that, uh, staff can be transferred out of the school, the principal can be let go, the school can be taken over completely, uh, turned over to a charter organization, or even closed down. Uh, In healthcare, we looked at some efforts by the Medicare uh, administration to uh, reward physicians and physician groups on the basis of the reporting of outcomes to the public so that you can make some judgments about the quality of care or actual outcomes achieved by, uh, by patients. In uh, public health emergency preparedness, and that's kind of a, um, an unfamiliar title as well, we use it to refer to the responses of health departments to either uh, natural disasters or man-made emergencies. Um, and here we looked at a program the uh, Centers for Disease Control has uh, through cooperative agreements with state health departments to give them uh, extra rewards uh, based on their ability to demonstrate preparedness in a variety of ways for cer- through certain uh, exercises. Uh, and then finally in transportation we looked at what's called cost plus time contracting, or A plus B contracting where there is a basic price for something like the repair of a road and then there's an additional incentive based on how timely that repair occurs. Um, uh, So what I'd like to do today is summarize what we've learned Uh, trying to draw some lessons across these five sectors, but with specific examples from each of the sectors to um, give you something to sink your teeth into and to uh, critique my presentation about. Because I suspect that while few of you are experts on all of them, each of you is probably fairly familiar with at least one of these uh, instances. Um, So let me begin with an example that sort of characterizes a place where uh, this kind of accountability works really well. The picture here is of the Loma Prieta earthquake, which some of you may have experienced directly. It was in the Bay Area in 1989, um, and uh, what we have uh, in front of you is the, um, the East Bay Freeway. I actually can't remember if it At this point, it's I-80 or I-580, but it was the double-decker freeway, which in fact pancaked uh, after the quake. More than 20 people were killed. Uh, It was really a a terrible disaster. Transit between the East Bay and San Francisco was interrupted for months. There was a huge loss of time and a significant loss of productivity. And in the wake of this collapse, the Department of Transportation, uh, uh, Caltrans, uh, tried mightily to get repair work done in a timely manner. And they used the traditional approach. They let contracts to builders who could do this kind of repair. But it dragged on for an enormously long period of time. And the public and the business community were extremely frustrated about this and complained Quite a lot about how long it took uh, to get these repairs made and to restore uh, smooth transit. Contrast that to what happened here locally in 1994 after the Northridge earthquake. This is Interstate 10, the main east west highway across Los Angeles. It carries roughly 200,000 passengers a day. Um, And the same challenges confronted Caltrans, but at this point in time, they approached them in a different manner. Uh, They used this uh, notion of cost plus time contracting, where they offered a contractor a fixed amount of money when the repairs were completed, but there was also a a large incentive for early completion and a large penalty for late completion. Um, Also, I have to admit that the uh, the legislature uh, passed some regulations that smoothed the, the uh, contracting and regulatory process to make this go quicker. Uh, but the use of this contracting uh, vehicle actually had tremendous uh, positive results. The work was done almost a third ahead of schedule uh, because the uh, the. Company that did it mustered the men and the materials to do it rapidly in order to gain a substantial financial advantage. Uh, so, this picture of uh, this example of A plus B contracting and this picture kind of sets in our minds a model of how this kind of accountability can work best. And what I'd like to do is take this situation apart a little bit and look at what the characteristics are and then see whether those same characteristics can be found in other settings and uh, help us understand why you can't necessarily take a successful model and transplant it in another context and have it work uh, equally well. Um, So one of the things that was the case here is that the goals were clear and everybody understood them, and that was uh, to get traffic flowing again as quickly as possible. The second is that there were very clear and unambiguous measures. How many days does it take before the freeway is open again and everybody can drive on it? Excuse me. Uh, Third, the incentives uh, were adequate to motivate people to change their behavior. In this case, millions of dollars were on the table. Um, But the point point is that there's something about the the size and the access to the incentives that's important to understand. Um, The party being held accountable, the service provider, uh, has to really be able to control the delivery of services. Um, In this case, the contractor could hire as many people as as were necessary, could contract out of state to get steel uh, manufactured to specifications, um, uh, in some cases uh, actually uh, leased trains to ship the materials here more expeditiously than the past, had complete control of the things that were necessary to achieve the outcome, and the context, the infrastructure, uh, was there to support it. So we had rail lines and we had other streets. We also had health and safety inspectors in place who were ready to ensure that the work was done according to code uh, and that it was uh, that it met standards. So these five pieces are really critical if you're going to take something like a Uh, performance accountability system and apply it in a new context. And what I'd like to do for a couple minutes now is talk about some of those other contexts because they give fairly good illustrations about how it's not always easy to do any of these things. Um, So uh, childcare is a good case in which it's not even easy to say what the goals are. if you talk to families who send their kids to preschools or to childcare, you will find a variety of reasons. Some are doing it simply for um, to have their kids supervised so that they can go to work and earn an, uh, a living. Uh, some do it because they want to their their children to begin to develop socially and learn to interact with other kids and develop those skills that are necessary to. to literally play well in the sandbox. They're interested in social development. A growing proportion are interested in academic learning, and they're sending their children to child care to get a head start, to get started learning numbers and shapes and things that will come up uh, when they enroll in kindergarten or first grade. So there isn't a single goal that everybody who's being who's taking advantage of child care services, can all agree upon as the most important thing. And so it gets more complicated trying to figure out how you would build an accountability model for child care because somehow you have to weigh these multiple goals or uh, decide where the priorities need to be. Um, It is also a a tricky business to figure out how to come up with quantitative indicators, metrics, to decide if those long-term goals are, if you're actually making progress towards those long-term goals. Um, A good example is, is healthcare, again, where after I've been treated by the physician, what we really care about is what happens to me over the next week or two. Do my symptoms go away, do I get healthier, and do I feel better? But nothing in the system captures that information. The information in the system is what my test results were and what was prescribed, and the other things about how well I'm doing, there's no natural way to collect them. So to to get the measures of the things I might want to measure is going to be expensive. I have to build a new apparatus to collect data and follow patients after they leave the doctor. Um, In fact, the topic of measures is fairly rich, and we could talk about it a lot. One of the good examples that comes up from education is this idea of uh, teaching to the test. If you come up... Our long-term goal is someone who's a productive citizen. Our short-term goal is how well someone does on a reading and mathematics test at the end of the year. There's quite a gap there. But if you attach incentives to the test score, then you get the whole system sort of redirecting itself towards the test score and not necessarily all those other things that really go into building the productive citizen that we want to see at the end of uh, 12th grade. So it's not always easy to come up with a clear, ambiguous measure that really tracks the direction that you're hoping to go. Um, Childcare also provides an interesting example about the, um, the setting of incentives in the transportation case, lots of money was on the table and people reacted and made dramatic changes in behavior. In child care, in most cases, the only thing that's on the table is public recognition. You get an A, B, or C grade or you get a one star, two stars, or three stars, depending on the state and how the system is designed. And in many cases, that's not enough to command people's attention. So finding incentives that are appropriate uh, can be challenging. In some cases, you want it to be a reward. And uh, some settings, positive reinforcement is better. In some settings, you may want it to be a sanction or a negative reinforcement. And what works in one doesn't necessarily work in another. Uh, I mentioned this notion that the people you're holding accountable have to really be able to control the outcomes. That is also a problem. It's very hard to figure out in some organizations at what level you can actually uh, identify a group that can control what you want. So in terms of emergency preparation, the uh, Centers for Disease Control gives money to health departments. So they can only incentivize state departments of health. But if there's an emergency and a health department has to make vaccines available quickly or has to make uh, emergency medical services available quickly, they really rely, They can't do that without the help of police departments and fire departments who can make sure roads are cleared, they have access to safe buildings, uh, people are kept in line and controlled. So some of what they need in order to provide services are things beyond their control. And they're things that the Centers for Disease Control can't incentivize because they don't have any direct reporting relationships with the police department or the fire department. And you see this a similar problem in education where um, it's or in, in healthcare, where it's very hard to say if it's the individual teacher or the individual physician who determines the outcome, if it's the whole school or the medical group with the supporting staff and nurses and experts and technicians who produce the outcome, or if it's some larger um, aggregated unit. So attaching the incentives to people who can really produce the the outcome you want is tricky. And then... um, uh, finally, having the sort of support and uh, being aware of the context matters a great deal. Uh, in this case, I've even forgotten what my example was going to be that had to do with, um, uh, uh, with transportation. But when I described that, it was quite uh, um, clear that the contractors relied on access to materials and men and a labor market that was rich enough that they could call on services and other manufacturers who were producing the steel and the concrete and such. Without that bit of infrastructure, they could not have done the construction rapidly. Um, So the, the point I wanted to make as sort of, wrapping, th- moving towards wrapping things up, is that while this notion of performance decays accountability is fairly simple and easy to understand, um, it's actually can be quite complicated in reality to pull it off. Um, in fact, thinking of it as a static thing that you put in place it's a turnkey system, you put it in place and then you go away, is really um, naive. What we see is that you have to continue to pay attention because as the system is implemented, people's behavior changes. And unless you're watching carefully, uh, you you aren't able to shape the outcomes that you want. You need to pay attention to implementation and monitoring. Uh, Watch after no child left behind is passed, for it took three to five years for all of the pieces that were necessary to be put in place. And somebody had to go out and monitor the states to see if they really had adopted standards and if they'd actually implemented tests. And then over time, you need to look and see whether it's working. So so an important part of this is having some kind of an evaluation component that looks to see whether or not physicians are changing their behavior and patients are recovering, are improving more rapidly because of what you put in place. And then when you get this information, you have to go back in and tweak things. Um, it's unlikely you'll get it right the first time. You may discover um, a need to change the metrics, to rebalance the weights, to increase or decrease the incentives, etc., etc., so in looking at what this means for policymakers, we tried to cook up a kind of a primer, if you will, um, a set of questions that a legislator or a <clears throat> congressperson could ask themselves if they were thinking about, do I want to uh, pass legislation that says we should have an accountability system for uh, the welfare caseload, or for some other area of public service?" because this may not be the best choice. We all like the idea of accountability based on outcomes, but it may not work in every instance. Uh, So the questions mimic the things we've talked about today. Uh, Do people agree on what the goals are, and can you measure them in a way that uh, people will really uh, think is fair and meaningful? Uh, Who's the right unit, the right individual or the right unit to hold accountable for some service? What kind of incentives do you need to motivate change in behavior? In the end, you don't want to spend $10 million to get $5 million worth of benefit. So you also have to look at the total cost of this system. Uh, You need to ask how you're going to monitor it and um, see... Uh, whether it's smoothly rolled out and people understand the new rules and they are able to comply with the various guidelines. You need to look and see whether it's working and producing uh, improvements in the long-term goal that you're interested in, and you need to be able to take a step back and say, uh, can we change it, enhance it, improve it, to um, tweak things? Because if it works then the metrics, everybody will start to perform at the top, and there'll be no more incentives, and you'll need to change it. If it doesn't work, then you'll need to change it. In every case, you'll probably need to continue to refine this system over time. So with that, I want to thank you for your attention. I'm happy to entertain uh, questions. There are a couple of people coming around with microphones, and they will... um, Offer them to the lucky few. Uh,
2: Excellent. Well, we'll start right here in the front, ladies and gentlemen. Please raise your hand with any questions. And myself or my um, friend, Sachi Detimore, will come to you. Sir.
0: I'm uh, curious, with your expertise in education, if you saw Waiting for Superman and what your conclusions might be. Oh, well, thanks. I have not seen Waiting for Superman yet. It's, we are scheduled to actually preview it at a RAND event in uh, three weeks in November, and so I was holding off seeing it. I've read a great deal about it, and but I don't know that it's fair to just repeat critiques I've heard from other people. So um, it's I think it, it's exciting, and I'm looking forward to seeing it.
2: We have a question in the back.
0: Hi, my name is Chris Bly. I'm a private school teacher, and I'm also running here in Santa Monica for public school office. And with the with the question about waiting for Superman, I'm not going to ask you if you've seen that movie. But what I would like to know is where, where do you feel – how do you feel is the best way to hold teachers and administrators accountable? Because as a teacher myself with one foot in the public school system, I graduated from it, and I'm running for that district. And as a teacher in the private school system, I have two sets of different accountabilities that I have to deal with. Where do you feel is the appropriate – what do you feel is the appropriate way when that student graduates 12th grade that we can evaluate – if he or she has become a productive citizen, because tests probably aren't the only way to do that. I would agree that tests aren't the only way to do that. Um, You've picked one of the most complicated things. Building a bridge is easy in some respects. At least it's easy to judge whether it's been done well at the end of the day. And educating a student who's going to spend 12 years in the system before you decide whether ultimately, you had the success or not, is really complex. I don't think there's a shortcut to um, judging the quality of teachers, but I think, at, at a minimum, there are, it, should have, it should involve multiple dimensions. One is whether students who are uh, who are served by this teacher actually learn things. They improve from when they came in at the beginning of the year to the end of the year. Another is whether students' behaviors are enhanced they become um, uh, better classroom citizens and develop dispositions and interests towards learning you uh, and Again, it's not a simple solution, but you do have to hold administrators accountable for decisions that were within their control. Here's a place where often the the charters and the public schools differ quite a bit because in many charters, administrators have more control over their staff, their choice of curriculum, and in uh, public schools, that's often something that's done at a more aggregated level. But, um, yeah, I think that... My answer is that simple solutions are unlikely to be really very sophisticated. I
2: have a, I have a question to your right. <laughs>
3: um, at risk of never being invited to one of these things again, I'd like to raise an attitude that I have. Uh, I'm a believer in the free market system, and and the closer you get to the people that are actually in, uh, affected by what's going on, it uh, can be the most effective in in evaluating whether something is successful or not successful. This particularly relates to the education and the healthcare area. And it seems to me that the people that fund studies like this are the government, which is trying to enhance their role in society. And how do we how do we get back to moving education from the federal government, which it, is not supposed to be back to the states and back to the local markets, um, because you know, it's, it seems obvious to me that health care ought to be involving people that are actually paying for the, the, for the service that they need for themselves and their, children, and their, their families. Uh, I guess I'm wondering uh, how do we change that pendulum, the motion of that pendulum. I think one
0: of the things that... This study, by the way, was not funded by the government. It was funded by a private philanthropic organization. One of the things it points out is that Uh, In different settings, it's harder or easier to involve the consumer directly in some kind of an accountability system. You would think, for example, that in child care, where each person is sort of making the individual decision about which child care agency to engage, um, you would see a lot of response to things like the ratings that states do. But unfortunately, most, pers- most people's choices are constrained by where they live and what kind of trans- access they have to transportation. And so even with ratings, you don't see a lot of people moving to different um, preschools. They uh, Convenience trumps some of those outcomes. So um, I'm not going to tackle the larger question of whether we should be devolving responsibility, and how far down it should go. But I think our study suggests even when you get down to the individual consumer of the sorts, it's still not necessarily the case that that person's choices can be made as, as freely based on information as we might like them to be.
2: All right, we have a question in the back.
0: First, thank you for talking about public health emergency preparedness because that's what I study and what I do. So uh, you <laughs> no, have to Now I'm frightened. Uh, uh, one thing that's been impressed upon me is that if you don't plan for evaluation in the beginning, you're not going to get it. And you talked about in sort of imposing evaluation standards on things that are already in motion. And that seems to be much harder to do. Uh, can you comment on the dif- distinction, I guess, the differences between uh, trying to ev- Planning to evaluate something you have not yet implemented versus trying to evaluate something that's already in progress. Well, from the point of view of an evaluator, the was it the form planning to evaluate something that has not yet been implemented is far easier, and can and the evaluation can often be done in a much more rigorous and uh, and valuable manner than having to evaluate something that's already ongoing. So. There are real advantages to being able to do that. The The difficulty is evaluation is not particularly appealing as a policy. People, uh, legislators, foundations, uh, citizens want to put their energy into doing more than measuring. So it's too often the case that evaluation is an afterthought. Uh, and in our little presentation, we say you ought to think about that at the beginning, but I haven't sold anyone yet <laughs> that, and made that happen.
2: I have a question here.
0: Uh, this is addressing the healthcare care issue, which is probably the most complex. Uh, when you talk about an incentivized outcome system in healthcare, care, uh, there are physicians that take care of healthy yes. working individuals. There are oncologists where their outcome is going to be horrific. And certainly even in oncology, if you have someone, a physician, that's working on a very difficult area, the outcomes are going to be even worse. So how do you develop an algorithm where the physician to get the incentives is not going to dump the very sick people and tend to be with the healthy ones? Good. Excellent question. And, it's, and I said, I think, when I started talking about measures, that we could spend the whole hour just talking about this. And this is an instance where you're exactly right. Some people treat healthy patients, and some people treat terminally ill patients, and somehow you can't judge them on the same criteria. So there are, there are a couple of approaches. One approach is to use some fancy statistical techniques to try to actually adjust the numbers based on the profile of the patients who are coming in. Um, it's absolutely analogous in education to taking the, um, the scores at the beginning of the year and measuring growth uh, rather than just taking the scores at the end of the year and comparing them to a threshold. You sort of adapt based on the health of the patients that you see. And uh, that can actually be done pretty well in a lot of specializations, but it gets to be obscure and complex, and doctors are not always very trusting that these statistically adjusted indices are really fair to them. Uh, So another approach is to actually say, what we're going to judge you on is not so much patient outcomes, but whether you've followed uh, validated procedures. And you can do this to some extent in medicine better than than most other places because medicine has evolved a set of clinical practice guidelines that say if somebody comes in presenting these symptoms and has this kind of history, here are the kinds of things you should do. So another approach, and Rand has done a lot of work looking at this, is to judge Uh, individuals on whether or not the practice they deliver is consistent with best guidelines for what ought to be done in that case. And some of our studies find that most people get roughly half of the recommended care, even here in Santa Monica. Fair enough, and I don't think you can apply these things wholesale um, and capture people who are in unusual aspects of a given profession. Um, if it works well for the, the middle 70, 75%, uh, you may still have to employ some kind of specialized criteria, human judgment, supervisor judgment, to deal with um, groups or individuals that are in very specialized and unique Situations.
4: Uh, Thank you. I'll speak about the transportation profession and ask you to respond to two two separate questions. Uh, One is at a very high level. I I feel you picked an example, you cherry-picked an example, uh, obviously, that at a very high level, many people would say the goal of the transportation profession is not just to build a bridge when it's fallen down on an earthquake. (laughs) And some would say it's not even to build bridges and roadways, but it's to provide mobility, to provide access or to reduce uh, greenhouse gas emissions, or oil consumption, or safety, or et cetera, et cetera. <clears throat> so we have trouble even in transportation agreeing broadly on the goals, much less getting into the second levels. Uh, so please respond to that. A second thing at the opposite level is, uh, I work for the for a government agency, I'll not mention which one, and we have just in the last week gone through a goal setting process, a performance planning process where we were asked to lay out what we do, uh, what the expected outcomes of those actions are, and we were told to pick one or two of those uh, as critical performance objectives for which we will be held accountable as an individual. We were advised, as you suggest, to uh, pick those only those items w- for which we have complete control, and I wound up only being able to pick one. Because everything except that one that I do is, is collaborative in nature. Uh, so given that much of what we do is collaborative, how do you apply accountability uh, to an individual when that individual is part of a much bigger process?
0: Well, let me uh, see if I can speak to both. Uh, within, you're right that I cherry-picked an example in transportation because I wanted to start the talk with something that I could tick off all of these points, In our study, uh, we looked at four different cases within transportation. In addition to the one that I talked about, we also uh, considered uh, the uh, corporate average fuel economy standards, the CAFE standards, which are a kind of a performance-based accountability system, transit funding formula allocations, and the Clean Air Act, which has a much broader goal. Uh, and, And they are more or less good examples of where accountability like this can work. So I think you're right. The sectors are really quite diverse. And in some cases, you can capture a good example. And in some cases, the the larger purpose is very hard to get a hold of. And you have to sort of take take chunks and work a chunk at a time. Uh, On the second question, I think I can still remember having to do with... How do you incentivize individuals for things that are really produced by groups? Uh, And I think we'd say that you don't try to incentivize the individuals. You try to put the incentives at the group level, where there's generally enough, a control of a, a significant amount of the process involved in actually getting the outcome. So uh, we've been doing a couple of studies on giving bonuses to teachers, and in one study the bonuses went to individual math teachers <coughs> in middle schools, and in another study the bonus went to uh, teams of teachers—math, uh, reading, social studies, and uh, science—who worked together with the same group of students because they had, they cooperated and they had a, a sort of a core of kids that they worked with. And uh, the idea there was to actually put the incentives on the group that had the most control, the appropriate level of control of outcomes.
2: We have a question in front.
1: (laughs) Um, My problem is that uh, my problem is with your term accountability. Uh, On the one hand you say it's the same as what is determined by the market. And uh, On the other hand, you say it's a a long-term, I mean, it's a a short-term versus a long-term concept. I don't mean to be facetious. Keynes is out of fashion in the long-term, we're all dead, he said. But my question is on the long-term situation. Who is going to be the reviewer? It got to be the market again. And how do we get the market in if we Take it really out on the first place and get it in on the second place. I mean, what we have already failed, I mean, our healthcare system, our education system, I wouldn't say is a failure, but it wasn't certainly perfect. That's what you try so hard. And, and so, um, I mean, all my respect. But how do we get that together, the short term versus the long term, is my question.
0: It's, it's very difficult. I said you want to look at your eventual goals and find uh, me- short-term measures that uh, help you see whether you're on target to get to those long-term goals. That's almost impossible. That's a very difficult thing to do, and I, I brushed over it somewhat uh, simply. Uh, but it is very hard to think about systematic change that's going to take a long time, and compare it with market choices that happen in the short run. Um, What you hope for is that there's a kind of an institutional learning or an institutional memory in the systems, in the school systems or in the governance systems in the legislature that will continue to apply the same, ask the same questions, make judgments about the answers, try new things, see if they work, and uh, monitor it. Uh, but just the individual consumer choice won't necessarily get, get you there. Could you talk a little bit more about what you learned about um, uh, the, what incentives work in what context? So assuming you've got the goals and the measures all right, that still leaves you a range of, of incentives, financial, reputational, positive incentives versus sanctions. Uh, What did you learn about about incentives there? I don't know if you're going to be satisfied with the answer, because what I'm going to say is we sort of found that incentives seemed to work when they were consistent with the culture of the organization. And, um, And so dollars made sense in the construction context. And... Public recognition makes sense a lot of times in the education context. Uh, I don't think there were very many uh, simple answers to that, which is a, a really excellent question. But somehow, uh, different o- sectors and different organizations had ways of operating, and the people in them resp- knew the kinds of things they responded to, and you try, we suggest you take advantage of, of that sort of thing.
2: We have time for one final question in the back.
0: Can you give some examples in other nations of where it's worked and it's where it's failed? This is where I need my (laughs) co-authors. I I can't give you a good example. I know that a lot of these ideas were actually uh, uh, built on things that happened in the United Kingdom. To some extent in uh, Germany, to some extent in Australia, those were the cases we looked at most closely. Um, But a lot of these reforms mimic uh, things from the UK. A lot of the reforms we see in the US mimicked examples from the UK. There's there's a chapter in the monograph that talks a little bit about the historical and international context that can do a better job than I can. So can we take one more question so I don't end on a defeat? (laughs) Uh, I
4: see a picture in front of me uh, uh, of, of, of people who want public services and are not necessarily getting, getting them as quickly as they'd like. And last year I, I try to call, actually I personally try to call the Franchise Tax Board because of a little issue, and uh, I never could end up talking to a person. I guess there are people that work there, but they never answer the phone. <laughs> So what, do you, what, what, does, what, what can be done for some of these government agencies that seem to have a lot of excuses but not necessarily be delivering on the services that we expect?
0: Well, one thing that can be done is you can build into the compensation system evidence from clients. Um, I think this is done, I, I'm told Kaiser does this, that those satisfaction surveys that patients fill out carry a lot of weight when it comes to reviewing uh, physicians and such. Uh, we don't, the, that doesn't happen at the DMV as far as I know, and this analysis suggests <laughs> that, in fact, if the managers or if the s- state uh, agencies that oversee them started measuring consumer satisfaction and building that into the compensation systems, the lines might shorten or they might not but that would be a step i would suggest
2: Take the the introducer's prerogative tonight, and I want to ask you a, a quick question, uh, if I if I may. Um, I know that you were part of a team that worked on uh, some evaluation, particularly of incentives around teacher performance, recently, and it was a bit of a first of its kind. Um, uh, and uh, we, Rand was a contributor to a, 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 a multi organization uh, uh, study, um, and I believe it was of the uh, of a program in Tennessee, if <laughs> I'm correct. And I wondered if you could sort of give us some. The, some highlights from that as far as what in a pay-for-performance context surprised you most or impressed you most about the, the work that you had the chance to do because this is such a, a novel area in, uh, in education. All right.
0: I'll do my best. We were part of a, of a group of three or four organizations that conducted a randomized controlled trial of a bonus system for mathema- middle school mathematics teachers in Nashville. And what a randomized controlled trial means, that's sort of the gold standard for research that you get in medicine. Um, uh, Teachers volunteer to participate, and then they randomly are assigned either to be the potential of earning a bonus or no potential of earning a bonus. So that in the end, if the bonus teachers' kids did better than the non-bonus teachers, it's not because you selected more motivated teachers or other things. Um, it's only the bonus that this leads to this outcome difference. So after we followed them for three years. We compared the performance of their students to the performance of other students who started the year at the same place. This was an Im- important thing. So if you came in and you were scoring, let's say, at the six and a half grade level, and then at the end of the year you were at the 7th grade level, we compared each kid to the whole state what happened to all the other kids who started at the six- and a half grade level at the beginning of the year, and how does this one kid compare? And teachers in this study could earn large bonuses 5, 10, 15,000 dollars. But to earn those bonuses, they had to do pretty well. They had to kind of reach the 85th percentile, do better than 85 out of 100 teachers nationwide. Uh, And that was the design from the beginning that the people felt was the model for bonuses that would likely carry the day in education. The end result was a surprisingly little effect. For the most part, um, there were no test score differences uh, between those who could earn a bonus and those who couldn't earn a bonus. Uh, And there are a lot of things that might explain this. Uh, And one of them gets back to that point about culture that I was mentioning before in response to your question. The teachers said to us in the end that it wasn't about the money, that they were working as hard as they knew how to already. And so incentivizing them to work harder didn't make a lot of difference. They were there because they had a kind of public service motivation to be in teaching, and they um, were doing the best they knew how to do. Uh, Sure, but um, until we sort of proved it, uh, it w- didn't carry as much weight with uh, Congress. You know, um, so uh, that's a that's a glimmer of what's in this study. We did find that teachers who, worn, who earned bonuses felt a little bit better about things after earning a bonus.
2: Well, I I, I want to thank Brian tonight for a tremendous presentation.
0: Um, Welcome. This presentation is provided as a public service by the RAND Corporation. To learn how you can attend programs at RAND, visit us online at www.rand.org/events.